tales of horror. As the sleepless hours tick past, brace yourself for the No Sleep Podcast. As we head into the week of U.S. Thanksgiving, I'm sure we all have plenty to be thankful for, mostly for the beginning of the end of 2020. Let's hope we have only a few more months of pandemics and real-life horrors to deal with. And when it comes to some non-real-life horrors, we're excitedly getting ready for next month's annual Christmas episodes. We hope as the holiday season kicks off that everyone will be in a frightful, festive mood. We ho-ho-hope to be doing a holiday live stream at some point in December, so stay tuned for that announcement. So if you're giving thanks at all this week, be good to yourself, stay safe, and treat yourself to a gobbler at the local Wawa, or however you choose to celebrate. We choose to be thankful for the horror stories we're about to receive. Now, let's begin our journey down this lost highway. In our first tale, we have to deal with the rain. You know what it's like. You're walking down the street when the skies open up, so you duck under an awning to stay dry and wait out the storm. But in this tale, shared with us by author J.D. Graham, you find yourself beside another person avoiding the rain, and they have a story they insist on sharing with you. Performing this tale are Jesse Cornett, Aaron Lillis, and Sarah Thomas. So next time you're going out, maybe bring an umbrella with you. That way you won't have to hear the tale about the marsh. standing under the awning isn't speaking to you in particular when she says the marsh is cruel she just comes out and says it I once saw the pluff mud swallow a bird whole fool thing swung down for a crab and got stuck then just kept sinking she spits <clears throat> took 20 seconds the poor bird was flailing the whole time it was a seagull all pretty and white, and then it was part of the mud. The wind picked up 20 minutes ago. Then came the lightning. Then the rain. Now you huddle under the awning in front of a restaurant, trying to stay dry, standing beside this woman. You do not remember when she joined you, and you have not seen her before. This will let up soon. Another summer storm in Charleston. 
she laughs a laugh you don't want to hear again. The street is turning into a river of muck. The rain mixes with what you suspect is manure from the carriage horses, judging by the smell. You can smell the rot of the salt marsh, too, on a street over. The wind gusts in from that direction and sprays rain across your face. You take a further step back under the awning. A car splashes water onto the paving stones of the sidewalk and soaks your jeans from the knees down. You can't tell if it is the water that muddies her white cotton dress, or if it was muddy already. All this was marsh, too. We filled it. We keep fighting the marsh, and she keeps coming back. What if she ain't cruel? What if we are? She spits again. This time, at your feet. And you step back again. She don't care. Is she cruel if she don't care? You don't answer. My Danny was down at the docks. I told the fool child not to run off and work the docks, but he did anyway at only 15 years old. He worked down at the docks like my husband did, and I would bring him lunch every day like I did for my husband. I knew the boys at the docks well. I knew the foreman as well as I knew my husband take my meaning. They were friends before the docks. And my husband always was mad he didn't get promoted to foreman. Came home late and came home drunk, he did. And angry and violent. I didn't cry many tears for him when he died. But I cried a few because we had good times. I cried most for me. Because now I was on my own and I had to pay for Danny. And Danny knew that. And that's why he went to work at the docks, to help pay. And one day, the dockhands are loading something off a boat and it falls in the marsh. It floats because it's wood and it ain't too heavy. So they have to get it and they call everyone together. The foreman draws a spot on some paper and they tear it up and throw it in a hat and pass the hat around. They made it real fair. Whoever draws the spot gets the box real fair. She spits again. It is thick and dark. It hits the pavement and holds its shape by your foot. My boy draws the spot. He's the youngest and lightest and freshest, and so happens he draws the spot. The wind has not died down at all, and the rain has not slowed, and the river of horse manure has not stopped. So they tie him up a rope around his waist and he starts to wade out. He slips, gets stuck, and then gets unstuck and fights the mud and they all laugh at him and he laughs too. He gets out to the box and he can't move it because of the mud. The boys on the dock tell him to untie himself and tie the rope onto the box. He does. And the boys start hauling the box back in and my boy follows, but he walks over the same place he got stuck before and he gets stuck again. Only this time he doesn't have the rope. The dock hands pulling the box laugh at him. They tell him, hold on and sit tight and don't go anywhere. We'll throw you the rope as soon as I get the box back up on the dock. So he doesn't move and they're pulling the box. 
and then he hollers, and he's up to his waist. They throw the rope and miss, and he's up to his chest, and he's flailing, and they pull the rope back in. Then he's up to his neck. Then he's under. The foreman goes out with the rope for him, but my Danny's part of the mud now. And the foreman, well... The storm is slowing. The woman was right. The river of manure keeps flowing. But the rain is light now, and the wind is almost gone. The clouds are breaking. Sunlight dapples the sidewalk. Parts of the road rise above the river of manure, and steam rises above the road. The woman turns and looks at you. I show up right then, a minute too late to see my boy one last time. I have his lunch, and I ask after him, and they tell me he's down by the docks, and I walk out to the dock, and I see the group. I see the foreman climbing out, but not my boy. The rain stops. The wind blows warm. I walk down, and the foreman stands up. He sees me and rushes over. He says it wasn't supposed to happen. He and the hands were only playing a little prank. They were going to give him a beer at lunch and welcome him to the team. They did it to everyone. But I kept asking, where was he? Where's my Danny? Her voice is loud. In the silence left behind after the rain, the sun has almost beaten back the clouds. And they tell me where, and they point. Foreman apologizes, and I cry. Cry until I laugh, and tell the foreman how Danny wasn't only my boy, but his too. I grab the rope, and I jump into the marsh, and I push through the mud until I get to the spot they pointed out. I reach under the mud, and I can't feel anything but more mud, some marsh grass. I can't feel them. I reach deeper, and now I'm up to my chest. I'm holding the rope, and I reach deeper, and now I'm up to my neck. So I let go with the rope. She sighs spreads her arms, and then drops them again. I searched for a long time. She turns, and she looks in your eyes. Her eyes are gray, and they are deeper than any eyes you've ever seen. She spits again, between the two of you. You look down. Where she spat on the paving stone, you see a thick glob of mud. A marsh is cruel. You do not look back up. You do not speak. You turn away. You push open the door of the restaurant. The manager greets you with a wad of napkins. Thought you might need these. Thanks, you say, as you dry your jeans. Glad you finally came in. (laughs) Uh, Hell of a long time to stand and watch the storm by yourself. You look back over your shoulder. Through the glass pane of the restaurant's front door, you see the steam twirl like a white cotton dress in the summer sun.
You think driving is a better way to avoid problems with the rain? Well, I know one woman who would disagree. You see, she's taking a road trip and decides to drive the stretch of highway known as the loneliest road in America. And as we learn from author G.C. Jenkins, when a rainstorm sweeps in, she soon realizes how bad her choice really was. Performing this tale are Jessica McAvoy, Jesse Cornett, and Graham Rowett. So tune up your car, pick well-traveled routes, and check your weather app when you travel. That way you'll avoid the loneliest road. Lamb be everything? The dreary-eyed gas station cashier eyed my selection of energy drinks and assorted candy. I started to say yes as I reached for my wallet when the cigarette display behind the counter caught my eye. Either I stared at those death sticks without saying anything for longer than I thought, or the cashier was more perceptive than his tired face implied because the old man asked me the one thing I was hoping he wouldn't. You want cigarettes? I tried to say no, but my habits won out over my brain and lungs, and I shamefully asked for a pack. He rung up my purchase, and I handed over my last ten dollars of cash. I gathered up my armful of bad choices and pushed through the door into the hot, dry, and all-around uncomfortable afternoon typical of the American Southwest. I got into my car and continued on what was seeming more and more like a cursed road trip. After two popped tires, a near miss with a truckload of drunk rednecks, and my funds dwindling a lot earlier than I thought they would. Unfortunately, I was far too stubborn to turn back. My ironclad commitment to seeing my spur-of-the-moment adventure sparked by an overabundance of free time between semesters at college through was the only thing keeping me going. Well, that and my ever-emptying tank of gas. I was growing increasingly pissed at five days ago me. That idiot had thought driving from Maine to California in a second-hand pickup truck would be fun and exciting, dishearteningly boring, and overflowing with bad drivers turned out to be more accurate. The one bright spot still on the horizon, quite literally, as I made my way out of Utah and into Nevada, was the so-called loneliest road in America. The stretch of Highway 50 that cut across the vast nothingness of the Nevada desert was famous for its notable lack of basically anything. Just miles and miles of empty desert and endless sky. Perfect. With a full tank of gas and a complement of poor health choices freshly procured from a dingy rest stop, I was ready to embark on the only length of my trip I still dared hold out hope for. With a bad hair metal song from the 80s blasting on the radio, the cigarette sticking out of my mouth and my arm hanging out the window, I almost felt like an independent badass forging her own path on the open road. Of course, I was really an angsty college student with a dangerous habit that was slowly killing her on an ill-fated sightseeing tour of the most nothing part of the country. I drove for another few hours or so, 
keeping myself alert with energy drinks and candy in a display of unsafe driving that would give my old driving teacher a heart attack. By the time my fifth cigarette had burned down to the butt, the sun had disappeared below the horizon, and the sound of distant thunder had overpowered the soft hum of my engine. I switched the radio station over to the weather. Normally, I would have just used my phone, but since leaving the last gas station, there hadn't been a single bar of reception in sight. The small town station was hosted by a cowboyish weatherman whose smooth country voice sputtered out a severe weather warning over my garbage speakers. Howdy, folks. Those of you still up at this hour might want to make sure y'all ain't got nothing too nice sitting around outside. We got a real bad storm rolling in. Make sure you get all your fancy cars in the garage and try your best to stay off the road now. Well, crap. I pulled out my old lighter and lit another cigarette, a little more frantically than the last one, and thought about what to do next. I could pull over and wait out the storm, or I could try and power through it, likely dying in the process. I was about to make the sensible choice when the folksy weatherman piped up with another warning. Well, folks, looks like this here storm's gonna be bigger than we thought. If you got anywhere to be tonight, I suggest you either be there already or reschedule, because this spot of nasty weather is going to last till late tomorrow. Wonderful. Normally, I would have been all about safe driving during bad weather, but the last thing I wanted to do at that moment was waste a day of my vacation sitting in my car on the side of the road. I decided to push through the storm, regardless of how stupid an idea it seemed. Looking back, I should have just turned around right there. My first clue that something was wrong came when the storm finally hit. The rain pounding against the roof of my car made an almost calming sound that, combined with the grainy weather reports coming over the radio, created an atmosphere so soothing that I almost didn't notice the person standing on the side of the road. I blew right past him, But out of the corner of my eye, I saw a man, probably not much older than me, just standing on the side of the road in the freezing rain. I checked my mirror to be certain I wasn't hallucinating, and sure enough, there he was. I was about to turn around and ask if he needed a ride, when the cowboy weatherman on the radio, I'd dubbed Tex, gave out some suspiciously relevant advice. Now, if any of you fine folks are still out and about tonight, be careful who you go talking to, you hear? Nights like this tend to inspire the less kindly of us to come out of the woodwork. Uncanny timing aside, Tex made a good point. The kind of person who stands on the side of a desert road at night during a rainstorm was probably not the kind of person I wanted sitting next to me in a car. I kept on driving, feeling safer with every bit of road I put between me and the would-be hitchhiker. I felt significantly less safe when, not even five minutes later, I passed another roadside creep. Just like the last guy, he was perched motionless on the side of the road with a completely vacant expression. The only difference was that this one was holding something. I couldn't tell exactly what but it looked like an armful of rags or sheets, something shapeless and blobby. After that, things got really weird. 
At this point, the storm and the highway weirdos were both ramping up in intensity. The rain was assaulting the roof of my car, and the people on the side of the road were appearing more and more. At first, I thought maybe I'd ended up driving through the middle of some kind of festival or something. But I realized they were staring at me as I passed. Like they didn't appreciate my intruding on... whatever they were doing. The storm kept building. The lightning was now happening so frequently I could see clearly for miles down the road. There they were. A teeming mass of people gathered on either side of the highway like the New Year's Day crowd in Times Square. I kept on driving, now fully speeding down the highway, desperate to escape whatever strange gathering I'd ended up driving through. It felt like the more I drove, the bigger the crowd got. Throughout all of this, Tex had been dishing out folksy weather reports that I hadn't been paying the slightest attention to. I was lighting my umpteenth cigarette with a shaking hand when I finally caught what Tex was saying. You should have listened to me, darling. My mouth fell open. I nearly dropped the lit cigarette onto my lap. I was telling you to turn around. I was telling you not to come here. Tex's welcoming tone was long gone, replaced with a strange kind of anger, like a disappointed parent scolding a child. Honestly, I feel sorry for you. I really do. If we're up to me, we would have done away with this whole business a long time ago. But now there really ain't nothing I can do for you. You belong to them now. With that, the radio faded out into static. I was once again alone with the sounds of the storm. Needless to say, I was terrified in a way I hadn't known was possible. I floored the gas throwing all caution to the wind. As I sped down the highway, the creeps only grew in number. I got to the point where I couldn't see anything on either side of the road. Just more and more people. There were hundreds, easily, and all of them were just standing there. I was pushing my pickup to its limits, a fact I realized all too late when I heard the sound of the engine giving out and saw smoke coming up from the hood of my truck. I slowed to a stop, stranded in the middle of the sea of weirdos I'd stumbled onto. I sat there for a moment, unsure of what to do next. I didn't have any cell reception, so calling for help was a bust. Should I just stay here until morning and hope nothing happens? Should I make a run for it? Unfortunately, I didn't get to make that decision. The people started to fill in around me occupying every available inch of space on the road. At first, I thought they would break in my windows, drag me out of my car, and carry me away to God knows where. Instead, a group of five gathered at the rear of my pickup and started to push me down the road. The ones in front of me moved forward in near-perfect unison, and in the mirror I could see the endless crowd behind me following this bizarre procession. This unexpected favor didn't make me feel any better. As they carted me off down U.S. Highway 50, Texas' last words over the radio rang in my head. You belong to them now. They pushed me down the road for what felt like hours. I spent most of that time watching them in my rearview mirror. Whenever one would appear to slow down or get tired, a new laborer would step up to take their place. There was no communication involved. 
One would begin to falter and another would occupy their position, like they had been waiting for their turn to come around. None of them seemed to mind the rain, the walking, or the cold desert night. I could only see their faces whenever lightning struck nearby, but they all looked calm. They reminded me of churchgoers in prayer. Their heads were bowed slightly and their eyes were closed. I saw that a few were holding bundles, like the man I'd seen earlier. Eventually, they veered off the highway and onto a dirt side road that plunged deep into the desert. Our track slowed to a crawl as they struggled to force my truck through the mud and wet sand. But my mysterious congregation never stopped for even a second. Any slim hope of escape I had before was gone. Even if I could somehow evade the army that surrounded me, I couldn't even see the highway anymore. Best case scenario, I would get lost in the Nevada desert and either drown in a flash flood or starve to death. Worst case scenario, my new friends would decide I had offended their hospitality and retaliate. Down that dirt side road, we stopped at what I assumed was their destination. They had brought me to a small rock formation sticking up out of the desert, a mesa only about 30 feet tall. The congregation dispersed. All but the ones who pushed my car gathered at the base of the rock. They all knelt and bowed their heads. I noticed that some of them carried torches, despite the rain. The torchbearers ringed the mesa and stood perfectly still, extending their flames towards the rock. That was when I heard it. It started as a low rumbling that I mistook for thunder at first, but instead of petering out into the distance, the sound kept building and building. It built to a crescendo that I could feel in my bones before erupting into a roar. At least, that's the best way I can think of to describe it. It was a sound that reactivated long, dormant regions of my brain, triggering a primal fight-or-flight response that hadn't been used since we moved out of our caves. I practically spasmed in my seat, kicking the dashboard and punching the windows and screaming for help. Whether or not the people kneeling a few feet away could hear me, I'll never know. If they did, it didn't seem to trouble them in the slightest. They started to sing, adding their voices to the roar. I couldn't understand what they were saying, but I could feel the rhythm in my body. As the choir reached the end of their song, the storm came to an abrupt end. The clouds disappeared, and the moon illuminated the entire desert. In the pale light, I saw it. Sitting on top of the mesa was a towering something. It seemed to defy every law of existence I'd ever known. It was pale red, like dried blood. Its head, if you could call it that, was a misshapen blob of eyes and teeth that churned and bubbled as if it was still trying to figure out what it was supposed to look like. That was perched on a bloated body, covered with wounds and gashes filled with tendrils that writhed like maggots, burrowing deep into its core. More disturbing than any of that was its stomach. Its belly was distended and ripped open like it had been pregnant and whatever it was carrying had busted out very suddenly. Another roar came from the creature, and all the people who had gathered around the mesa lifted their bundles into the air, 
the black tendrils stretched down the sides of the cliff and took the offerings from their hands. The wrappings fell away as they did, revealing the bodies of dogs, cats, chickens, and other small animals. I sat, frozen with fear, as hundreds of black arms piled dead animals at the opening of the creature's open belly. When the last of the offerings were laid, the body of that thing started to shake. Its malformed head let loose a final screech as a clawed hand stretched out from inside it and pulled the form it belonged to out of the belly of the beast. This one was emaciated. It looked like it had never in its life eaten enough food to keep it satiated. It was vaguely human-shaped. It had arms and legs and a head. Its skin was tight, like its bones had grown twice as fast as everything else. Its arms and legs were longer than the rest of its body, making it crawl like a spider. It hunched over the pile of animals and shoveled them into its mouth. It tore the meat apart like a wild animal. Its jaw opened farther than seemed possible. Once it had finished devouring its meal, the new creature began to howl. It wasn't a roar like its parent. It was more like a baby crying. The people began to sing again. But this time the song was softer, a lullaby. The baby's crying changed with the song, becoming more robust and powerful. The gatherers cheered as the baby climbed down from the plateau. As it descended, the torchbearers closed in on the creature. The baby twisted and writhed to avoid their fires as they swung them back and forth. They formed a circle around it, herding it towards... Towards me. I went limp as my guards forced open my door and dragged me out into the mud, petrified by the primal sense that whatever this monster was, it was truly destined to kill me. I sat on my knees as the baby lurched its way towards me. Even crawling on its hands, it still stood taller than my car. It towered over me. Up close, I could see the places where its skin had been stretched too far and ripped smelled like rotting flesh. I braced myself for what seemed like the inevitable. The torchbearers pushed their flames in closer to the beast, and it screamed as the heat got closer. Whatever part of my mind that was still functioning saw this and realized it's afraid of fire, something I just so happened to have on me at that very moment. I willed my hand to reach into my pocket and grab my lighter. I frantically tried to get the wet piece of crap to spark as the baby stalked closer. None of the people around me seemed to notice, their attention solely focused on their song. The baby was getting closer, its rancid breath wafting over me. I could count its jagged, crooked teeth and clearly see the sunken pits where its eyes should have been. The lighter finally produced a tiny flame. As the baby closed the last bit of distance between us, Ready to pounce, I shot up with every ounce of energy I had in my body and jammed my lighter into its eye hole. My hand plunged deep into its skull, and I felt the flesh inside it writhe, as if it were made up of the same black worms that infested the body of its parent. The beast recoiled, scampering backwards and bowling over the line of torchbearers behind it, letting out a scream of pain that still echoes in my nightmares. 
It must have come into contact with one of the torches, because it screamed even louder and ran towards the rest of the gatherers. The members of the congregation stampeded over each other to escape the baby as it charged through their ranks, swiping its bony claws and dashing people against the rocks. The adrenaline that was keeping me on my feet gave out, and I fell back down to my knees. I must have blacked out for a moment, because I opened my eyes to see the shape of the baby running off, deep into the desert. The bodies of several gatherers were lying still on the ground. I sat in the mud until sunrise, my mind reeling. Once I remembered how to move my legs, I stood up and walked the length of the dirt side road back to the highway, trying over and over to understand what had just happened. I came up empty every time. I stood by the road with my thumb out for a while. I won't even bother guessing how long, until a trucker stopped and gave me a lift into town. After a few unanswered questions about how I ended up out there, the ride was completely silent, except for the voice of the local weatherman on the radio. Now it looks like last night's storm has finally passed over our little slice of heaven. My sympathies go out to any folks who was caught up in it. Driving out on some of these roads in weather like that can lead to some unfortunate occurrences. But I reckon if you're listening to me right now, you must have got out fine, right? This is just a friendly reminder from your favorite weatherman. Stay safe out there, folks. Have you ever lived or worked near a playground? It can brighten your day to hear the sounds of children playing, but the sound of the squeaky playground equipment can become annoying and distracting. And in this tale, shared with us by author Ian J. Middleton, we meet a man who's bothered by sounds from the local playground because they happen in the middle of the night. Performing this tale is Joe Sheary, So if you can't sleep because of the noise, you might have to take matters into your own hands. You'll have to do something to silence the swing. Everyone is familiar with the shrill of an aging swing the high-pitched resonance that forces the listener into a wince if allowed to continue unabated. You may have heard it the last time you took your kid to the playground, or while walking your dog through the park, or even dredging up forgotten memories of an age when you enjoyed the simple pleasure of swinging back and forth. At twenty past midnight, that's where the irritable noise should remain, as a memory, but not tonight. It's been going on like this for, I don't know, An hour, at least. I should say something. 
If Janie were here, she would have told me to say something. She thought it was a blessing that the rear garden backed onto a playground. Less than 10 seconds from dinner table to climbing frame, the estate agent had assured us. It was more like 10 minutes once Janie and I had gathered all of Patrick's stuff and he'd finally put his shoes and socks on. A headache is already brewing. I roll over on the bed. The other side is just as uncomfortable and offers no improvement on the current situation. There is a pair of earplugs somewhere, bought when we were replacing the bathroom. They were for Patrick. The purchase was such a rookie mistake. Getting foam buds into a two-year-old's ear was a nightmare. We went back to the hardware store the same day and got some ear defenders instead. Oh God, he looked adorable in them. The continued squeaking claws for my attention and pulls me from the sweet memory. Blood rushes to my muscles. The bed covers are torn off and my feet land heavily on the carpeted floor. I march to the window and pull the curtains apart with such force that one of the runners springs free and sails across the room. I don't see where it lands. My attention is focused on the solitary figure stood in the playground. Dressed in a long black overcoat, the hood pulled up. The shadowy character pushes a vacant swing seat back and forth. The squeaking seems to increase in intensity. I look for any others that might be in the park. Drunks or teenagers with no better place to go. Yet the playground is empty. There is no one hanging around on the slide or resting on the seesaw. This isn't the suburb for that kind of thing anyway. The house prices see to that. The only alcoholics around here are the stay-at-home mums knocking back a bottle of overpriced vino every night. The lonely figure is almost hidden in the darkness, absorbed by the night, and would have gone unnoticed at a casual glance if it were not for the movement of the swing and the accompanying wail. I bang on the window with a fist. The pane of glass rattles within the frame. The figure does not react. The swing does not slow in its trajectory. I try again, more forceful this time. My knuckles sting from the impact. Right. I go to open the window, but it's caught on the latch. The damn thing sticks. We meant to sort it out. It was on the to-do list that Janie and I are destined never to complete. My attention is diverted to the infernal mechanism as I battle with the lever. It jolts to the side and I shunt the window upwards. As I do so, I look back into the park. The figure is gone, no doubt scared off by the impending confrontation. A satisfied smile grows across my face. I reach for the curtains and notice that the swing is motionless, just like the others around it. Motherfucker! I grab a fistful of duvet and whip it off the bed. It flies like a ship's sail caught in a storm. I'm at the window in a flash. The curtain flung back with similar intensity. The figure is there again, wearing the same stupid jacket and pushing the same empty swing that emits that irritating metal-on-metal cry. My furious eyes remain fixed on him as I force the window open. There's no fumbling with the latch this time. No chance for this inconsiderate prick to make an escape while I'm momentarily distracted. The swing continues to glide back and forth, forced into action by two hands attached to a docile owner. Excuse me, mate. I'm leaning out of the window, ensuring that my voice is a little louder. The figure doesn't react. 
The swing replies instead in the only way it knows how. Oi, dickhead. Not even a flinch. I pull my body back into the dimly lit bedroom. Right then. Socks are snatched from the wash basket, slippers retrieved from under the bed. Wrapping a checkered dressing gown around myself, I'm out of the bedroom and starting down the landing. I pass Patrick's room and pound down the stairs. The carpet does little to soften the footfalls. I'm through the kitchen and at the back door. From here, I can see the tops of the playground equipment, the launch of the slide, the thin edges of the climbing frame and the upper outline of the swings. All of the chains are still, save one that shrieks and wails in the night. Six strides through the unkempt rear garden, and I'm at the hinged panel we built into the fence, the sliding bolt that secures the entranceway, positioned high up so that Patrick couldn't reach it, is showing signs of rust. Creepers have begun to grow around it, claiming it is their own. There is a throbbing in my temples. My legs feel weak. I, I attempt to shift the bolt across, but it refuses to move. The swing yells out in what sounds like taunting laughter. I shoulder the fence panel in response, remembering that it needed to be weighted to allow the bolt to move. An additional security measure that would have had its benefits once Patrick was old enough to reach the latch. But now it acts as an infuriating obstacle that needs to be overcome. I launch my whole body weight at the wooden entranceway. It flexes from the impact. The bolt jumps out of the holster and slides back with a loud bang. I lean back and pull open the panel, announcing my arrival in the most dramatic fashion possible. I'm greeted with an empty playground. The swing is still. The night is silent. I scan the area, eyes narrowed, checking that no one is watching me from the bushes. I listen out for the sound of escaping footfalls. Nothing. Approaching the stationary swing, forcing back the memories it invokes. I stand where the figure once did. The chunk of molded plastic appears so innocuous, and the swing is pushed. There is no shriek, no shrill, no cry. It moves as I remember, minus the child's laughter I miss so much. The playground is scanned for a final time. I clear my throat, straighten my posture, and head back to the house. The entranceway through the fence is wide open, as is the back door. My stomach flips at the realization. I quickly survey the house. The bedroom window is ajar. The curtains that shield Patrick's room from the outside world are drawn, as they have remained for the past several months. Prizing myself from the spot, I head toward the house, my attention on the back door. Something flickers above in my peripheral vision. Did the curtain in Patrick's room move? It was probably nothing wind or something. But on this still night, the increasing sickness in my gut suggests otherwise. The entranceway through the fence is closed but not locked. The back door is left in a similar manner. Moving through the kitchen, I stop at the counter littered with empty whiskey bottles. The top drawer is eased open and I remove the largest of the kitchen knives on offer. The Gyoto chef knife. One of the more useful wedding presents we were gifted. I creep into the hallway, taking care not to disturb the creaking floorboards and arrive at the base of the stairs. All is quiet. An attempt at swallowing fails due to a dry and coarse throat. 
the grip around the chef knife is adjusted. It's held out as if I'm about to cut a wedding cake. Memories of that magical day Jamie and I shared are pushed aside. I need to focus. With my back pressed against the wall, I take the stairs one slow step at a time. Over the thudding of my heart, I tell myself that I'm acting irrationally. Yet, the knife is not lowered, and every effort is made not to alert the possible intruder of my approach. I'm on the landing. Framed photos of a smiling family hang on the walls. Patrick's room is on the right. The door is open, as it always is. It was how he left it. I sneak up across the landing. It feels narrower and more claustrophobic than before and arrive at the entrance to my son's room. I lick dry lips, count to three, and move on to four. My neck cranes around the doorframe. It's empty. Of course it is. There are few places to hide. Under the bed is full of boxes. The cupboard is split into shelves that even Patrick struggled to conceal himself within during games of hide-and-seek. I convince myself that I don't need to step inside and investigate further. Satisfied, I move on to the bathroom. Towels are heaped onto the floor. The leaky tap that I've still not got round to fixing continues to drip. But nothing is out of the ordinary. I'm alone. Everything is back to how it should be. Returning to a cold bed, I attempt to sleep with an eight-inch blade under the pillow. I saw the figure again today, on the way back from the hardware store. I just purchased a tin of oil, can of CRC, and a set of bolt cutters for good measure. As I drove past the park, the figure was there, stood in broad daylight, surrounded by oblivious children playing under the watchful supervision of their parents. No one paid him any attention as the empty swing continued to be pushed back and forth. From this new vantage, I should have been able to make out a face, but the shadow the hood cast created a deep void that swallowed up the light. The figure did not look up, did not acknowledge my presence, and did not allow the swing to come to a rest. But my plan will soon see that change. It's twilight when I leave the house and head to the rear gate, bolt cutters in hand. After much deliberation over a tumbler of cheap scotch, I decided that oiling the chains would simply be a temporary fix, a band-aid over an infected wound. The swing needed to be removed. The limb needed to be amputated. In the fading light, I take the bolt cutters to the chains, snipping them off at the very top. There is to be no option of fixing the playset, no chance of retaliation. The first chain falls to the ground and coils up like an injured snake. The second soon follows, crashing to the ground in a metallic jumble. The evidence of the vandalism is stuffed into my pack. I consider leaving it as a message. No, leaving it as a warning. A warning that I am not to be messed with. That I capable of taking matters into my own hands. But instead, I choose to remove the seat and the chains, so hindering the chances of repair. I return to the house with the slightest spring in my step. The bag is dropped down, the bolt cutters are leant against the counter, and the latest bottle of scotch is picked up. 
The tumbler is refilled with a victory measure and the living room sofa welcomes me back. The room is bathed in the dull glow of the TV when I stir from my drunken slumber. The sharp tang of alcohol hangs in the air. A glance over the side of the sofa confirms that I must have dropped the glass when I passed out. It is another recent addition to the messy patchwork of stains that covers the floor. Soon after moving in, Janie insisted that the garish mint green carpet was replaced with an overpriced stormy grey number. Peeling myself from the sofa, I wobble my way into the kitchen and rinse the empty glass in the sink. It is then filled and I knock back several mouthfuls of tepid water in the vain attempt to soften the inevitable headache tomorrow. The tops of the playground equipment are visible in the moonlight. It is possible to make out the hanging chains of the swings, bar one. Damn right. My dulled senses do not notice the slurred words or the slight sway in my stance. The tumbler is refilled. I go to leave the kitchen. Then it happens. I spin on the spot. A concentrated fury pumps through my veins. I launch the tumbler at the back door and it explodes into thousands of glistening pieces that scatter across the tiled ground. Before they come to rest, the bolt cutters are already within my firm grip. I yank the door open. I don't feel the shards of glass bury themselves deeper into the soles of my feet within each purposeful step. I don't feel the long grass under my bleeding feet. I don't feel the fresh night air against my skin. All I feel is rage. The bolt cutters will not be used on the chains tonight. The entranceway through the fence is pulled open and the sight that awaits me stuns me to an abrupt halt. The park is empty. The play equipment is motionless. The gap where the offending swing once hung remains. Yet, the high-pitched cry continues to mock me. It then dawns on me that the source is not from the playground, but from within the house. I look back at our once-perfect, two-bedroom, detached home with its new bathroom, stormy grey carpet and son's bedroom I'd not entered since they'd left. I then notice that the curtains to that hallowed room have been pulled back. A racing pulse hammers at my temples. Deep breaths launch spittle from my lips. I'm at the house in seconds. At the base of the stairs in a blink of an eye, a trail of bloody footprints is left in my wake. There is no hesitation, no concern for creaky floorboards, no second thought given to the intruder who's made a mistake of crossing me. The stairs are taken three at a time. The metallic shrieking intensifies with each step. Shards are driven further into the soft flesh of my feet. The pain isn't comparable to what I'm about to inflict. In the four strides it takes to reach Patrick's room, the bolt cutters are raised up in attack. My arms shake in anticipation. I launch into the room, the significance of the action lost to the seething moment of anger. The figure is stood, frozen in place, in the center of the room, dressed in that familiar long jacket. The raised hood shrouding its face in darkness. Up close, the intruder is larger than I expected. All that means is that he will fall harder. There is no pause. The bolt cutters are swung with indiscriminate force. 
They passed through the figure as though they were made of smoke. Black traces followed the trajectory of the weapon. My momentum carries me forward and I crash into the dresser located under the window. Model toys and folded clothes fall to the ground around me. Stunned, I look back. The figure remains. The void within the hood stares down at me like the barrel of the gun. In the second it takes for me to get to my feet, I notice an unsteady line of crimson footprints pass through where the intruder stands. Gritting my teeth, the bolt cutters are raised and brought down again. There is no contact. Trails of black smoke chase the improvised weapon into the shelving units. Framed photos crash to the ground. I remain on my feet and swing the bolt cutters around as though shooting for a home run. I watch it pass through the raised hood and bury itself into the cupboard. Yanking the weapon out pulls the unit over. It topples onto me like a breaking wave. Adrenaline-fueled muscles cast it aside as it crashes into the ground. Another victim of my spree. Anger forces me to continue. The weapon collides with everything in the room save the intended target. My vision descends into a watery blur. My throat burns. My grip on the rubber handle begins to loosen, friction giving way to the building sweat of my palms. I swing for the last time. The bolt cutters leave my hands and sail through the window. The shattering of glass is deafening, worse than any squeal of an old swing. With hands pressed against my temples, I fall back against the wall and slide down onto the toys and pictures that used to be neatly lined up across the shelves. <sighs> Tears begin to flow. A saltiness coats my lips. I'm at the mercy of my tormentor, yet he is absent from the triumph. I am alone, as I'm destined to be, with the consequences of my impulsive rage-filled actions for unwanted company. It hurts to look at the chaos I've created. I lower my gaze and see a photo frame resting at my side. The grass is cracked, but the image is still visible. It's of Patrick playing on his favorite swing, beaming with joy. Janie is in the background, pushing him back and forth, sharing in the captured moment of happiness. I remember taking that photo. I remember that we printed it out and framed it that afternoon. I remember it was the last day we spent together. The frame was squeezed within my hands. The wooden frame splinters in resistance, then fractures in two, taking the cherished memory with it. It is hurled across the room and added to the carnage. There are now few things left in Patrick's bedroom that have not suffered from the outburst. Up until a few months ago, there was just one defenseless child. Raising a young child isn't easy for a couple. 
It becomes even more difficult when the mother is struggling with depression, leaving the father to care for both mother and child. But in this tale, told to us by author S.E. Adams, the man soon realizes his daughter is changing in increasingly disturbing ways. Performing this tale are Atticus Jackson, Sarah Thomas, Nicole Goodnight, Mike Delgadio, and Erica Sanderson. So understand that some children deal with things differently, and sometimes they really need to open up and let things out, just like Nessa. Oh, God. When Marcy tried to drown her in that lake, I... I thought that was it. She'd finally snapped the tether. She was going to take her daughter with her. We tried so hard to help her. Nessa and I. Nessa's only seven, but she loved her mother. When Marcy complained one of her headaches was kicking off, Nessa ran right outside with her dolls to play. She never pushed her. Neither did I. I always told Nessa not to stray into the woods every time she ran out that door. But I couldn't watch her all the time. Marcy was certainly in no shape to handle it. And I had to work. I tried so hard. But someone had to support us. And... Sorry. Sorry. I'll try to focus. I want to get all this out, but... I don't know if there's enough time. People need to know. They have to know that our family did the best it could to hold itself together. Marcy sure as hell can't tell him. My name is Edgar Darby, and I'm going to tell you everything. I don't think I'll be around to see what's thought of my statement, but I hope you, whoever you are, understand... I swear to God, I tried. It started a few months ago. My wife's depression sent her spiraling right back down to that black hole. The one we thought we'd finally climbed out of. But it happens. Cycles can come on strong and run anywhere from days to years. It's hard to tell. Stressors like major life events and even little things can be triggers. For Marcy, I think it was work. We just moved into this beautiful house upstate and the commute to the city to work at the magazine started to get harder and harder. They began asking more and more of her. The pressure was too much. It happens. It's not her fault. I know it's not. At first, I didn't catch on. I had my own problems at the bank, and the upkeep of that big house upstate we'd gotten for a song was turning out to be a bitch. No wonder it had been such a great deal. The place had looked fine, then started falling apart the second that fucking realtor put the key into my hand. The ass couldn't say his goodbyes and get to his car fast enough. If we could have afforded it back then, I would have sued. But we couldn't. 
so I made the best of it and began the repairs myself with all the time I didn't have. So I didn't notice something seeming to sap the life out of my Marcy until maybe a few weeks after it had started. Then, one day I got home to find her laid out on the couch. She seemed more out of the world than in it, the tilting of her head the only acknowledgement of my presence. Marcy? I found I was bracing myself for whatever was coming. She looked my way with a tired smile. I quit today. You... You quit? I quit. She smiled wider, though there was more sad resignation than actual pleasure in what she was telling me. I sputtered, fumbling to come up with a response aside from the string of curses I wanted to let loose. That wasn't going to help anything. She watched me, unaffected, and turned to face the couch. The conversation was over. The other Marcy... The one who frequently stole the life of the vibrant woman I'd met in college was back. With this revelation, it took me a full minute to realize how quiet the house was. Mars, where's Nessa? Outside. That jolted me into moving. Outside? It's eight o'clock at night! She didn't bother responding. I took off out the back door, cursing to myself at it all. Nessa! I called across our expansive backyard, Nessa. the main reason why we bought this damn place. Nessa. Our daughter liked to run, and she liked having her friends around to do it with her. We talked about parties we could throw, the things we could build to make our lives better, to make us closer. That was going to get difficult in the future. Nessa! Ness! Hi, Daddy. There was my daughter, in a white sundress and yellow sweater. She came bounding from the far corner of the yard, right on the edge of the woods. She was smiling. In my relief, I didn't immediately notice how off it was. Nessa! Jesus! I came off the back steps, reaching over as soon as she was within range to scoop her up. It's dark. You should have come inside. You know what I told you about those woods. What were you doing over there? She shrugged, giving me a placid stare and a wide smile. Just playing. She hugged me around the neck. Though the strangeness of her behavior was just beginning to sink in, I didn't bother asking questions. There were other problems to deal with. I told you about those woods. I carried her in with a sigh. I rubbed her back and hugged her tight. Stay away from them, alright? And come inside when it gets dark. I'm surprised you didn't get eaten alive by mosquitoes. It takes something bigger than a mosquito to eat me alive, Daddy. She said this so flatly it startled me. But it wasn't like it wasn't true. It's a figure of speech. Though I was pretty sure she knew that. Setting her down on the counter once we were in the kitchen, I went to the fridge. 
Even though I already knew the answer, I had to ask. Did Mommy give you dinner? Nessa shrugged at me. She said you'd do it. She watched me, still with that placid stare, a little on the empty side, and that smile. Something was off there. Are you okay? I took out a small pile of leftovers, glancing towards the doorway. Marcy wouldn't get off the couch until she was dragged. I knew that from experience, but it didn't stop me from checking. Mommy didn't hurt you, did she? My daughter shook her head, then she made yet another flat statement. It takes something worse than mommy to hurt me, daddy. I slowed, in the midst of laying all the leftovers out on the table for some quality mix and matching. When I looked back, Nessa met my eyes without flinching, barely blinked. There was something wrong, but Marcy would never hurt our daughter. All she'd ever done, no matter how bad she'd gotten, was hurt herself. Not wrong, then, but definitely off. Okay, sweetie. I'd try to figure out what it was later, I promised myself. There was just too much to handle. Especially now that Marcy had apparently quit her fucking job. God, we'll just break even on my paycheck. I'll have to call her parents to make sure she gets the treatment. That she starts taking her meds again. All of it. Her mother might even have to babysit. The nanny's probably going to need to be the first expense to go. So with all this and more in mind, I let my daughter's odd little smile and empty stare go. She was fine. I couldn't handle the idea that my wife and my daughter had decided to snap at the same time. I'd fix it. All of it. I just needed time. Turned out there was an abundance of that. I took the paid vacation time I'd been storing up, which turned out to be a few weeks. My boss wasn't thrilled, but I needed to put my family first. Not paying attention was why my wife had relapsed before I could catch her, and my daughter seemed to suddenly be turning in on herself. Marcy got into outpatient treatment the next day, and the meds came the day after. Finding the right new mix was going to take a lot longer than two weeks, but at least she'd be able to keep her head straight around Nessa when I had to go back to work. At least I could hope. Not too long after I got that going with the help of Marcy's parents, I started to wonder if we were going to have to do the same for my daughter. Nessa became less and less interested in talking to us, spending every spare minute playing outside alone. Then she'd go straight up to her room as soon as she had to come in. Getting her to come for meals was always a battle. She always pushed me within an inch of punishing her. That was when the look in her eyes cracked some, and I'd see a glimmer of something less than pleasant. Something utterly entertained with my attempts to be a parent. Something a little malicious that didn't want me interrupting whatever it was she was trying to do. I caught her near the woods more than once. God only knew what she was doing when I wasn't home. 
Marcy's mother was more focused on her daughter than her granddaughter, and Eileen and I were constantly arguing about her needing to keep an eye on both of them when I'd make runs into town to pick up groceries and run errands. Eileen thought that, of course, given that Nessa was such a self-sufficient and smart little girl, it'd be fine. Apparently, she didn't see what I saw. Marcy didn't seem too concerned either, but that was par for the course. I only started to worry when I realized she was actively trying to stay away from Nessa. It just got worse over time. Excuses to miss meals or take them in her room. Claims of being too tired to keep vigil out the window on her daughter's antics in the yard. Eventually, she dropped the excuses and would just leave when Nessa was in the room. When we had first talked about getting pregnant, postpartum depression was our first concern. We worked with the doctor, kept a close watch on everything. For the most part, Marcy did fine. But that was because from the very moment the nurse put Nessa into her arms, Marcy was in love. Our daughter always meant as much to her as she did to me. Maybe more. It takes a lot to mess with that bond between mother and child. Or so I thought. The need to remove herself from Nessa's presence didn't seem like lack of interest. It seemed like fear. Nessa never acted any differently around her mother than the rest of us. She still wasn't herself, but she didn't single Marcy out for anything. Not as far as I knew. There wasn't much that I could do. Marcy wouldn't discuss it and Nessa didn't seem to care. Once, she was more than happy to follow her mother around and coerce her into her favorite games. Now Nessa barely noticed Marcy's existence. Unless she was prompted. When we had her inside for the night, I could prompt Nessa into any sort of pleasantries that would be usually required of a kid. She'd go through the motions, then we'd be back to square one. When my two weeks were almost up, I went to see Marcy's psychiatrist to tell him everything that was going on, just in case. I always made sure to have these check-ins with all of her doctors from time to time. Even though he couldn't tell me much about her treatment, I could tell him everything that was happening in case Marcy just happened to be leaving a few things out. I laid it all out for him, then sighed and sank back against the somehow too comfortable chair in his office. So, that's it. Any thoughts, or...? Dr. Calgary sighed through his nose, giving me a measured look that implied he was trying to figure out exactly what he could get away with saying. While I didn't blame him, the few minutes of silence was a little much under the circumstances. I'm not asking for details on what she said. I, I just need to know how to handle this. I probably sounded a little more desperate than I wanted to, but between the two of them, it was warranted. There was another too long moment of silence before Calgary decided to open his mouth. You already know how your wife feels about your daughter. There was my confirmation. There's not much you can do other than keep an eye on things. While she's a bit young for it, I'd get Nessa in to see a therapist. Sometimes it's just a disruption in the home that causes odd behavior in kids. Someone to talk to might help take care of her moods. 
He paused, considering again, and I tried to pretend it didn't make me want to throttle him. Her fascination with the woods probably has something to do with your wanting her to stay out of there. He raised a hand before I could respond, smiling thinly. I I know, and you're perfectly justified in your fears. But maybe if you took her on a walk, let her explore some, it would remove the mystery. At this point, what have you got to lose? He had a point there. I sighed, rising to my feet and shaking hands with him when he did the same. Thank you, Doctor. You're welcome, Edgar. His smile broadened but remained the same level of sympathetic. Good luck. I'm sure this will all turn out fine. Marcy's gone into remission before, and Nessa sounds like a bright girl. They just need some time. Time. Right. The next day, I decided to go for it. I even tried making it a family outing. Marcy nearly had a panic attack, mumbling about how she couldn't. She simply couldn't. But I didn't let up, starting to show some of my frustration in spite of how hard I was trying to keep calm. I don't know what's going on between you two, but Nessa needs her mother. You don't have to do anything, Mars. Just... Walk with us. (sighs) She sighed out a shaky breath, looking at me with pleading eyes that were just a bit too wide. Edgar, she's not right. Haven't you seen how she looks at me? She's not right. She gave a furtive glance towards the hall, then looked back to me. I don't... I... Don't think that's our daughter. That scared me more than anything else had so far. Mostly because some small part of me thought she was right. I spoke sharply, attempting to snap us both out of it. Marcy, listen to yourself. What the hell do you think- You know it, too. She cut me off, her eyes somehow seeming bigger as she grabbed at my shirt. I saw her a few nights ago. She sneaks out. She does things. She's evil. Marcy. This time, I was almost yelling. Almost. Marcy, either you come with me and try to have a nice day with your daughter, or I'm taking you to get committed again. We need to be a family. That is our daughter outside. She needs you. You're going to start acting like it. That brought a new tenor to the fear in Marcy's voice. No, no, no. Jesus, Edgar, please. No, Marcy. Fuck. I caught her shoulders, making sure her eyes were focused on mine. This is going too far. We can't have a repeat of last time. Not with a kid to take care of. Either you come with us, or I'm calling Calgary. Now. She seemed to slump in my grip, giving a whimper the likes of which I've never heard out of my wife's mouth. 
but I could tell she was going to do it. It didn't feel particularly great that the guilt didn't hit me until after I'd gotten what I'd wanted. I sighed, kissing the side of her head. It's going to be okay. We just need to try harder to be normal again. Marcy didn't answer me. Instead, she hugged me. Just as I was awkwardly starting to hug back, she went past me, resigned to her fate. Though I didn't love the way she was acting, I didn't argue with it. Once she got outside, got some air and some sun, it'd be better. Nessa took hardly any coercing at all to get her to go out for a little hike. As soon as I said the woods, she was on her feet from where she'd been playing in the grass and headed my way. I let her ride on my shoulders for a while when she asked, and with that prompting she even drew Marcy into conversation. My wife kept her replies almost careful, as if she was trying not to anger Nessa, but I let it go. She was here, and the deeper she got into the woods, the more life that seemed to flow back into her. Her eyes got more alert. She seemed to be taking in the scenery. Maybe this would work. After a while, we made it to a clearing where a lake stretched out before us. Whoa. I stared at the deep blue waters that barely rippled, as placid as that look in my daughter's eyes. Funnily enough, Nessa didn't look surprised. She went around me, straight to the lake's edge. Finally. That sense of paternal panic automatically kicked up in me again, and I straightened, leaning forward to grab her. Nessa, don't! Then I stopped. The water was dark, but it was still reflective. Where Nessa stood at the lake's edge, it was perfectly smooth, a little too perfect. Just like my daughter when she was going through the motions after she got the right nudge. My daughter, whose reflection had somehow doubled, giving her a twin standing right next to her. The Nessa on the left was rosy-cheeked and smiling wide, but it was in the same way she always had before all this. My little girl was the one on the left, the one who disappeared into herself. The Nessa reflection on the right was even worse than the one who stood on dry land. She stood corpse-like with black eyes like twin voids, waterlogged with her blonde hair stringy and in her face. She stared up at me in unison with her twin. My daughter, the one on the left, grinned and waved at me. The Nessa on the right smiled far too wide. Glasgow smile, showing half-rotted teeth. Nessa! I cried out, but the Nessa on land was unaffected. She gave that little smile at her sisters in the water, then turned to face me as I stumbled backwards. Already I was trying to tell myself I'd imagine the whole fucking thing. There was no way. Just no way. I never saw Marcy coming up behind me with the rock. Stars shot across my vision as she struck me across the back of the head, 
and then I was on the ground, fighting to stay conscious. My wife stepped over my prone form, dropping the rock. She went straight for Nessa, lifting her up. She was crying as she carried her back to the lake's edge. I don't know what happened to you, sweetheart. But I'm going to release you. Marcy. I held my bleeding head and groaned as I tried to roll and sit up. Marcy, don't do it. She didn't seem to hear. Instead, she knelt by the water and lowered our daughter into it. Then, she held her under. Thanks to my head trauma, I didn't notice it at the time. Nessa never fought her. Not once. Terror that rivaled what I'd felt moments before hit me full force. But it still took far too long to get up. Screaming my wife's name, I stumbled to my feet running to grab her shoulders and yank her backwards. She let out her own scream in frustration, letting go of our daughter so she'd stay in the lake. It took all I had to not fall in, but I grabbed Nessa and lifted her out again, setting her back on dry land. She coughed, choking up the water she'd inhaled. But overall, she seemed to be okay. I turned briefly to see Marcy still on the ground, froze when I realized the coughing had abruptly stopped. Nessa? I turned back to face her, confusion belayed by a growing sense of dread. Something was definitely wrong here. Nessa gave me that small smile and empty stare, though the smile was a little rueful, maybe over having stopped her theatrics too soon. It's alright, Daddy. She went past me to where her mother lay sobbing on the grass. My jaw worked as I fought to find words. And I watched as she reached out and patted Marcy's head in a gesture of comfort. It's okay, Mommy. Marcy continued to cry, regret and terror playing across every inch of her. I didn't want to. I didn't want to. I had to. It's okay. Then, my seven-year-old daughter snapped my wife's neck. I screamed. There seemed to be no other option. Sinking to my knees in horror at what Nessa had just done, I swayed and found myself fighting again to keep upright as my skull throbbed. Nessa dropped her mother's head, turning to face me with that small, rueful smile. I came from the water. Her once blue eyes were the same black void her twin in the lake had. Her voice wasn't her own. It wasn't my little girl. I came from the water. And your daughter was kind enough to let me in. I need a host to get home, you see. Host Blood opens it. Then I can be back with the old ones again. 
She turned and I couldn't help but follow her gaze. A staircase made of stone and inlaid with intricate marble designs that shined in the sun had appeared on the other end of the clearing. The thing inside Nessa looked back to me, her smile widening. Don't worry. We'll play the best games, Nessa and I. She's still in here. She's my best friend. But I have to go home. Her eyes flicked to the trees. And though I wasn't sure, I thought I saw shadows move between them. Thin things. Things that moved far too fast. Things that made my head swim and the option of passing out seemed all the more appealing. The thing inside went up the stone steps. Don't leave your wife's body here. The forest ones are less kind. They'll probably take her. She looked over. They'll probably want to make sure you can't tell anyone about us. Don't leave your wife's body. I watched as she... It dug a nail into Nessa's finger hard enough to draw blood. She bit her lip, turning her finger just in time to let the blood drip onto the stone. That was when the portal opened. I have to call it a portal... I have no idea what else to call the swirling mass of smoke that opened up in the world to show another one. Somewhere else lay on the other side, with a purple sky and obscene creatures flying through the air, things I can't even begin to describe. A gothic mansion stood tall amongst the orange grass, a monolith I somehow knew those things called home. The thing inside took a step forward. I knew it wasn't her, but God, it was about to take my little girl. It looked back at me, and it smiled. Leave this place when I am gone. Don't let the forest ones get you. And it went through. My screams as I scrambled after the form of my little girl would follow her. My head wound and the loss of adrenaline had me slow. And I couldn't move fast enough. I tried. Oh god, I tried. After it was all over and the portal had closed, my sole focus was on not blacking out. That pushed me to get out of the woods to stumble my way as fast as my legs would carry me. I didn't let myself look for the thin things, those barely visible shadows that might decide to be less kind. I just ran home. As soon as I was inside, slamming the door shut and locking it, I let darkness take me. It was night by the time I came around, I cleaned myself up, ignoring my own tears over what had just occurred. I'd need to call the police. I'd need to make up a story. I'd need... Marcy. 
The darkness outside was my only deterrent from running back out again. I waited until morning to return to the clearing, constantly keeping watch for the thin things, the forest ones. I didn't see any. Nor did I see Marcy. Her body had disappeared from the lakeside. The stone steps were gone too, though I didn't expect to see them. I examined the area, looking for any sign of what had happened. There were footprints, of course, the same size as Marcy's favorite pair of sneakers. They were everywhere. I left the woods after that and called the police. Making up a story about my wife snapping the tether and taking my daughter wasn't all that hard. No one said a word when I asked to stay in a motel. Besides, our house was a crime scene. I didn't go back for my things. Friends went and picked everything up for me. There's going to be a long road ahead while they try to find Marcy and Nessa. It's all over TV. A countrywide manhunt for my crazy wife. Keeping up the lie. It's going to be hard. But that's not what worries me. I don't think they'll find her. I'm more worried about what's going to happen when she finds me. Why don't we take a trip to the seaside? Ah, but there's no British pub in this tale. No, this time we meet a man visiting an odd little town to write an article for a travel magazine. But in this tale, shared with us by author Tyler Jones, the man keeps noticing a strange old man around town and is soon told a tale of why he's there. Performing this tale are Dan Zapula, Matthew Bradford, Graham Rowett, Mary Murphy, and Atticus Jackson. So the next time you're in a seaside town, remember the odd people who might dwell there, lest you encounter a warlock. As a travel writer, people often ask me, Where's the most beautiful place you've ever been? I always answer the same. Beauty is easy to find. Peace is much harder. And I want that now more than anything. Somewhere peaceful. Somewhere I can sleep. Because I haven't slept a full night in three years. Only a few months after my wife died, a magazine asked me to write a feature piece about the towns on the Oregon coast. I accepted the assignment just to have something to occupy my mind, and to give my ten-year-old son Colin and I some much-needed time away from the city. 
So we packed up our station wagon and drove up the 101 from San Francisco to Gold Beach. After one night there, it was on to Port Orford and then Cape Blanco. Four days into our journey, we arrived in Bandon, Oregon. Three blocks of wood-shingled buildings and shops that sold trinkets make up the old town. One store sold nothing but Christmas decorations all year round. All the tinsel and holly looked grotesque against the weather-beaten wood. We rented a small cottage near the beach, and I took Colin down to the ocean that first day. We wandered through the rocks, found tide pools full of crabs and sea anemones. He clomped around in his rain boots with pictures of robots on them, his too-big coat dipping into the water wherever he'd squat down to take a closer look at something. Wind-blown curls, red cheeks. His bright blue eyes, so wide and curious. But there was sadness in those eyes now. He had always believed the world was a beautiful piece of machinery, and he wanted to know how it all worked. But then he learned that people sometimes got caught in the machine and ripped apart by the gears. As I knelt next to my son and explained how the gravity of the moon controlled the tides, I considered his face, and it saddened me that I couldn't find the boy he'd been before his mom died. The other boy was so playful, always laughing, but someone much more serious had taken his place. Someone tainted by death. I saw L in his face, in the way he squinted his eyes when thinking. The way he always worried about the poor, the unfortunate, the homeless. Every Christmas, we had to convince him to keep the money his grandparents gave him. Keep him from giving it away. A flash of anger hit me. Anger at L for leaving us. Anger at the world for taking her away. Without looking up from a small red crab that scuttled away from him, Colin spoke. I read that dolphins might be as smart as humans. I reached down and picked up a sand dollar. It fell apart in the palm of my hand. They talk to each other, but we can't understand them. One book said they even have names for each other. I brushed the dust off my hand, then hoisted Colin up as a wave rushed in between the rocks, filling the pools with more water. Is that why we don't eat them? His small body in my arms, his mouth inches from my face. Particles of sand clung to his skin. Everything about him, so brand new. I don't think they taste very good. I think it's because they're smart. Something moved at the edge of my vision, and I turned to see a tall figure with a wrinkled face and wild white hair walking toward us along the beach. He moved with deliberate steps, wearing a black suit so wrinkled it looked slept in, and a black wool overcoat that engulfed his thin frame, sleeves that hung down past his hands. We were alone on the beach, no one but us and this lone figure dressed in black. Something about the man made me feel protective of Colin in a way I can't explain. Nothing more than an old man out for a walk, but my heartbeat quickened. I took Colin's hand and told him we'd walk further down, look for pieces of driftwood to take home. As we made our way out of the rocks, I turned around to look at the man one more time, but he was gone. I've wondered if I only imagined this part, but I swear, no footprints led away on the beach. Nothing at all. 
to mark he'd ever been there. The midday sky grew overcast as we walked back to the cottage. A dark wall grew on the horizon. Rain was coming. We drove to Old Town Bandon and ate dinner at a seafood place famous for its clam chowder. I tried to jot down some notes for my story, but I couldn't stop thinking about the old man who seemed to disappear without a trace. Pressure started at my temples and spread until it gripped the top of my skull. Another headache. They started right after L died, and I had one almost every day. Thunder cracked when we walked outside, followed by a heavy rain that fell fast and hard. We were soaked even before we made it under the awning of a shop. Colin stood there smiling, his curly hair wet and plastered to his forehead. As we huddled together, we heard a voice shouting into the storm. Standing at the edge! Always there! Always watching! Standing at the edge! Then we saw him. A man covered in trash bags stumbling down the center of the street. He passed by, but he didn't notice us. His eyes looked up at the sky, moving back and forth as though searching for something. His long hair was greasy, face hidden beneath a scraggly beard. After the man turned a corner and disappeared from view, Colin tugged at my sleeve, curiosity and innocence in his small voice. Dad, we should have given him some money. Your mom would have said the same thing, I thought. But I didn't say it, and now I wish I had. I don't know how long we stood there before turning and looking into the window of the shop whose awning we'd taken shelter under. The empty eyes of a bleached white ram skull stared back at me. Startled, I took a step backward into the rain. Shaking off the momentary shock at the display... I peered closer into the window. The shelves in the shop window were covered with an assortment of antique oddities. A spinning wheel, a typewriter, a steamer trunk, a lamp with a multicolored glass shade. Colin pulled on my hand and pointed across the street to a brightly lit shop that sold toys and kites. You can go look, but be very careful. I'll just be inside here. In every town we'd been to, I picked a unique shop to highlight for the story. Local color. And this place was as unique as any I'd seen in the town so far. I watched Colin run across the street to the toy store. Then I opened the door to the oddity shop and stepped inside. A dusty smell hit me. Old books, stale air. My shoes squeaked on the dark wooden floor. A few old lamps cast small halos of orange light that left much of the room in shadows. A noise came from somewhere near the back. A footstep, a creak. I moved a little closer and took a sharp breath in when I saw the ghostly shape of a woman hovering in the dark. She wore a Victorian dress the color of dried blood. The collar buttoned all the way up to her neck and her silver hair was done up in a way that I'd only ever seen in sepia-toned photographs. Her face tilted as she looked at me over the glasses perched on the end of her nose. You are welcome to look around as long as you like. Taking out my pen and notebook on instinct, I asked if she was the owner. 
She came over to me, moving a thick book to one hand so she could extend the other. Her skin was soft, but cold and thin. It shifted beneath my fingertips. Her eyes squinted as she looked me over. A musty smell radiated from her, probably the old dress. Are you a seeker or a wanderer? I'm just curious how a shop like this stays open. The woman's eyebrows went up. There are always enough seekers. Those who are meant to always find their way here. Shelves lined with glass jars filled with liquids and powders covered the right wall. One held the twisted claw of a bird. The woman's eyes followed me as I looked around the shop. I was about to thank the woman and leave when the bell above the door rang and someone came inside. The entire room went cold as soon as I heard his footsteps on the wooden floor. My head started to ache even worse, like talons digging into my skull. I spun around to see the man from the beach. Rainwater dripped from the shoulders of his black coat. He didn't look at me. Good evening. She stepped behind the counter. The man did not reply. He didn't even nod. History lined the man's face. Long, deep wrinkles curved around his mouth, lined his forehead. The white hair was bright and wild. His cloudy eyes opened just a little too wide. The woman handed him a small glass vial, half full of a reddish-brown powder. The old man held it up close to his wide eyes and shook it gently. I stepped closer, as if on instinct, yet not close enough to draw attention. I watched as his wet hand smeared the indecipherable writing on the label. The man took some wrinkled bills from his coat pocket and set them on the counter, then walked back to the door. Our eyes met, and I've never been so certain in my life that someone could see straight through me. Time slowed as the old man walked past. His eyes held mine, but never changed expression. Then the bell above the door rang, and the old man walked out. But there was a pressure in my head that hadn't been there before. I stood staring at the door when I felt a cool hand on my forehead. The woman had come over without me noticing, and she looked at me with concern as she pressed the back of her hand to my skin. She closed her eyes and tilted her head, as if listening through her fingers. She opened her eyes knowingly before speaking. You have a fever. She led me to a chair near the back of the store, then busied herself by pulling down five separate glass jars and tipping small amounts of whatever was inside into a glass of water. She stirred it all together with a pipette, which she removed and dipped on her tongue. She nodded once and handed me the glass. Drink it. I took a small sip. It tasted bitter and earthy. I need to get back to my son. Colin is fine. Drink up. My pulse pounded through my ears. The talons gripped my skull even tighter. The woman crossed her arms and leaned against a column as she watched me drink. All of it. Stir it a bit when it gets to the bottom. Make sure you get all the powder. I did as she told me, and as soon as I'd swallowed the last of it, the pressure in my head went away. 
She took a step closer and felt my forehead again. Thank you, ma'am. Charis. Are you Greek? You know this word, Charis. I nodded. Grace. Sometimes things are not for what they are, but for what others wish they could be. She knelt and took my hand in hers. I could see the pronounced blue veins and feel the bony fingers as they squeezed mine gently. A concerned look darkened her face, and her eyes narrowed. How many times have you seen him? My hands tightened around the glass. This was the second. Charisse closed her eyes and let out a slow exhale. There is something between you. The world turned and brought you together twice. Coincidence. She smiled with closed lips. So certain of what you know nothing about. He is a dangerous man. Be cautious. You know him? I know what he is. And that's all anyone can know. What is he? Her eyes flickered from my face. She took the glass from my hand and stood up, groaning a little as she did. She looked down at me and her eyes glistened with moisture. The years now showed in the lines on her face, in the knowing look in her eyes. Let me tell you a story. There was once a young family. A father, a mother, and a small boy. One day, the father became very sick. His illness lasted for weeks and did not get any better. The mother took him to the city to see the best doctors, but none of the tests could show what was wrong with him. Charisse took the glass from my hand as she paced in front of my chair. Her eyes distant as they gazed into the recesses of her mind and the past, instead of the inside of her shop. Over time, the father's illness worsened, to the point of near death. He could no longer eat, and his body slowly wasted away. The mother was told to keep him comfortable until the end came. Then, one day, a man came to their home, dressed in a black suit and black coat. His hair as white as the fleece of a sacrificial lamb. He said, All you have to do is ask. The mother asked what it would cost for this help, and the man replied, I don't know yet what the cost will be, but I can promise you it will be more than you expect, and it will not be me who collects what is owed. If you want my help, all you have to do is ask. The mother only had to think for a moment. Please help my husband, she said, for the mother thought that no matter how much money was demanded, she would go into debt for the rest of her life if it meant her husband could live. The lights in the shop flickered as thunder rattled the windows. Sherry stopped speaking and looked over at the lamp as it turned on and off. So she invited the man inside and took him to the father's room. He was so sick that he could not even open his eyes or speak. The man asked the mother to step back. Then he took out a bag which contained the ashes of a male goat and he drew a symbol on the father's forehead. A symbol I will neither describe nor name. But the man stood with his arms stretched out over the father, 
and spoke in a language the mother had never heard. As a man spoke, other voices seemed to join him in chanting the words, until it sounded like an invisible crowd had gathered. This went on for some time, until at last the man finished. Almost immediately, color returned to the father's cheeks. He sat up and saw his wife looking at him with tears in her eyes. She threw herself at the feet of the man in the coat, who looked down at her with pity and some sadness. He departed without speaking another word. The months went by, and the father was healthier than ever. The family was so grateful that they treated every single day as though it were something precious and rare, which it is. But then one night, the boy awoke screaming. The father found the boy sitting up in bed, staring straight ahead. The father took the boy in his arms and felt the small body tremble in his embrace. The boy pointed to the foot of his bed. A man was standing there, he said. A man in a black hood and robe. I could not see his face. I could only see his hands and long fingers, skin as white as teeth. The father comforted the boy and told him it was nothing more than a dream and to go back to sleep. The dream troubled the father, but he did not think more of it until the next night when the boy awoke screaming again. Again, he said that the hooded figure with the long white fingers had stood at the foot of his bed watching him. Cherise sat in the chair next to me, her face crisscrossed with shadows. Her arthritic hands folded together as if in prayer. It never stopped, you see. Years went by and this young boy awoke screaming every single night. Every single night seeing that same figure. Eventually, the boy's mind fractured. But he was no longer a boy. He was a man. Is he still alive? Charisse's eyes quivered with moisture. She nodded toward the window. You saw him earlier. Covered in trash bags, wandering the town. Searching for something that can't be found. My memory flashed back to the homeless man we'd seen. Speaking his fractured prophecies to the dark. That man has this kind of power? Part of me was waiting for her to smile and tell me it was all a joke. There is a story that he once brought a man back to life. The man wasn't the same as he was before, but he was no longer dead. I tried to laugh out of disbelief, but the sound came out all wrong. Charisse brought her face closer to mine. Her breath smelled of herbal tea and mint. You ask yourself, how could this be? But these things have happened for millennia. This is nothing new. Through the front windows, I saw Colin leave the toy store and run back across the street, head low against the rain. I stood up quickly, thanked the old woman for her time, and left the store without looking back. I didn't want my son to step foot in that place. The old woman was harmless, maybe even kind, but I didn't want my son to even breathe the air of a world in which all of the things she told me about were possible. 
We should have left the next morning for Winchester Bay. We would have, too, if the rain hadn't stopped and the sun hadn't peeked out through the clouds. The ocean water sparkled, the sand golden and glowing. A light breeze blew and kites floated in the distance, multicolored diamond shapes drifting across the sky. Colin stood at the window with his hands against the glass, looking down at the beach with excitement. Can I go for a swim, Dad? Please? I wanted to just get on the road and leave the man, the old woman, the strange antique shop, all of it, behind. But then I imagined what Colin's mother would have said. Let him go swimming. A morning like that one should feel different, and looking back, it did. Something was off, but I couldn't tell what it was at the time. A small voice in the back of my head told me we should just leave, but I didn't listen. When I looked at Colin's face, at his bright eyes and hopeful smile, I couldn't say no. He jumped up and down and gave me a hug when I told him to get changed. He ran into his room to put on his swim trunks. Only for an hour, Colin and I walked down the sandy pathway to the beach. I laid out our towels near some large rocks and sat down while he ran straight into the water without even testing the temperature. He shrieked as it hit his legs and rose up to his waist. He turned and waved at me, smiled with chattering teeth. I wasn't worried then, not yet. The waves were still gentle and Colin has always been a strong swimmer. I actually stood up to yell for him to stay close to shore, but stopped myself. At ten years old, the boy already knew not to go too far out. I sat back down as he threw himself into the small, white-tipped waves that rolled in. Colin shouted for me to join him in the water. I smiled and shook my head no. A wave hit his back and knocked him over. I sat up straighter and stared at the place where he'd gone under. And within a few heartbeats, he popped back up. His laughter carried on the breeze. I looked at my watch, thinking of the time needed to pack up our stuff and drive north, but I told myself to relax and let Colin have fun. I didn't take my eyes off him as he played, until dark clouds started to drift over the open space where the sun shone and covered it up. The beach, the ocean, the horizon, all of it turned gray and I turned my head at the sense of something moving to my right. I thought I saw a person's shadow stretch out in the sand, a thin figure with long fingers. I blinked, and the shadow was gone. When I turned back, Colin was gone too. Just an empty space in the water where he had been. The waves kept rolling in, but Colin was nowhere. I walked down to the wet sand, wondering if he'd just slipped under, but he still hadn't come up for air. My heartbeat grew inside me, became bigger, wider. It pulsed in my throat, made each breath tighter. I screamed his name at the ocean so loud that my voice went hoarse. My heart slipped as I ran toward the water. I screamed Colin's name again, thinking, I can't lose you too. I can't lose you, and a bomb went off inside my head. A burst of liquid fire 
filled my senses and erased every single thought. Pain flooded my skull. My body pitched forward, and my arms wouldn't move to brace me as I fell. My head hit the sand hard, and every muscle on the left side of my face sagged. I tried to speak, but only drool came out. The ocean waves sounded distant, distorted. Memories appeared in my mind and evaporated. Thoughts tumbled around, none of them making any sense. I'm having a stroke. My vision grew cloudy, blurred the ocean and the sky. But I saw Colin come out from behind one of the large rocks. Thank God he's okay. Dad? Dad? Are you alright? I tried to tell him to call 911, but my voice only moaned. Colin knelt next to me and touched my shoulder. I'm sorry, I was just hiding. I didn't mean to scare you, Dad. I'm so sorry. I tried to speak again. I knew the words I was trying to say, but they sounded like nothing, and Colin started to cry. He dug through my pockets to find my phone, and when he finally did, he cried even harder. The screen was shattered from the fall. Colin's face was a trembling picture, the ocean and sky behind him jerking in rhythm as my eyes spasmed. I wanted nothing more than to close them, but I couldn't look away from my son's face, from his fearful eyes. Dad, please don't go. Don't leave me alone. The skin on my arms started to tingle, like I'd touched something electric, just as a long, dark shadow fell over us. Colin sucked in a sharp breath and held it as he looked up. I started to scream for help, but the words never even had a chance to leave my mouth, because the shadow belonged to the man in the black coat. He stood there, shoulders hunched, head down, and stared at my son, his eyes both evil and sad at the same time. Wrinkles within wrinkles formed around his eyes on his forehead. His white hair moved with the wind. In my head, I screamed, No, Colin, no! Run! But I couldn't make a sound. The man held out one hand to Colin, palm up. All you have to do is ask. In our final tale, we meet a couple who have just purchased a cabin in the mountains. And while you might think that's the perfect recipe for the couple's horrifying ordeal, it's actually a lovely place they adore. But in this tale, shared with us by author G.D. Series, it's when they discover an old journal under the floorboards that they realize not everyone who lived there experienced the same amount of joy. Performing this tale are Tanya Milosevic, Kyle Akers, Jeff Clement, Danielle McRae, 
Wafia White, and Nicole Goodnight. So let's learn the tale the journal reveals about family, children, and my sweet boy. We bought a farm with a wooden cabin a few months ago for a ridiculously low price. I couldn't wait to drive up the mountain and explore our new vacation home. I'd always dreamed of owning a secluded, small haven. Fortunately, my wife loved it as much as I did. The first time we stayed at the cabin, we didn't notice it. The second time, yesterday, I found it while cleaning. After filling a hole under the creaking floorboards where I discovered the leather notebook, I made the mistake of reading it. I sat by the window with the best view of the vast, abandoned farm and opened it. Little pieces of dried mud fell on the floor, and frantic scribbles appeared on the yellow pages. Some weren't even legible. Others were erased by the moisture in the ground where the notebook had probably hidden for years. The rest? Well, you have to hear the rest, and... Draw your own conclusions. September 15th, 1991. The doctor said my heart is beating for three people, myself and my two babies. We are ecstatic. We're starting preparations for them immediately. We're going to renovate almost the entire house, and I've already bought tons of books about raising twins. I can't wait to share the news with the rest of the world. October 28th, 1991. The babies are growing quickly, and my belly has become bigger than I thought physically possible. Philip puts his hand on my belly all the time, trying to take hold of the tiny feet that are kicking me. It's a funny feeling. Two small people moving and touching me from inside. It's amazing. But sometimes, I'm ashamed to admit it, but I feel like they are parasites. December 9th, 1991. The problem started two weeks ago. The moving and the kicking have become constant and intense. Like my two boys are already fighting. I am afraid that something bad is happening to them. Maybe they have run out of space. Maybe they can't breathe. The doctor has assured us that they are both healthy. I should relax and wait. I read stories to them to get them used to my voice. Sometimes they stay still like they are listening. But most often they kick and stir and I can't sleep anymore. It's not painful, just uncomfortable enough to keep me awake. Feet protrude from my belly. One, two, three, four. January 3rd, 1992. 16 days. I keep seeing Christmas lights every time I close my eyes. Tiny bulbs hopping around at the rhythm of rocking around the Christmas tree. Philip was running late at work when I decided to put on the Christmas decorations. I was listening to the radio. A kick made me freeze. It hurt me. I hugged my belly and scolded my boys, reminding them to be patient. And then came another kick, even stronger. And then another, 
My breath caught in my throat and I doubled over as far as my round belly would allow me. I felt something in my body pop and crack. And then I was on the floor. The sound terrified me. The boys had to get out no matter what. I was sure they were suffocating. I reached for the phone, gasping for air, and called Philip. The babies! Grace, what's happening? Grace! Do you hear me? The fiercest kick I remember came, and the dancing red lights darkened until they vanished. Sixteen days since we buried him. For pages and pages afterwards, the entries were just numbers. I believe most of them were the height and weight of her child through the first five years of his life. The rest, I believe, to be steps she was able to take during physiotherapy. Don't judge me for continuing to read a stranger's diary. The curiosity of how it ended up under the floor of our cabin was too strong to ignore. You'll soon understand why I now regret it. December 18th, 1997. Yesterday, Caleb turned six. We threw a big party, and Caleb was delighted with his birthday cake and the presents. His happiness was worth all the pain I had to endure standing up all day. When everybody left, we talked to him about his twin brother for the first time. We told him how he had gone up to heaven and how he's now watching over him like a guardian angel. Caleb promised to remember him forever. My sweet boy. Caleb's favorite has always been me. Philip laughs about it. I was the same way with my mother. But I love my father just as much. Moms have a special bond with their children. They just do. And we just do. March 25th, 1998. Caleb has been doing some unusual things. He sits carefully on one side of the couch as though someone is sitting beside him. He places an extra plate on the table, even though we have no visitor. He mutters to himself, annoyed. His teacher is sure he has made up an imaginary friend. He's at that age, he said. He's very smart, and seeing how he doesn't have any siblings or a lot of friends. It seems innocent enough. So we put up with his little quirks, even joining in sometimes. I feel guilty that he's growing up without his brother. Yesterday I asked Philip if he had ever considered the possibility of us having another child. He looked at me surprised. Do you want to do it again? My grip tightened around the head of my cane. Some days my back is in too much pain to even get out of bed. But then I look at my beautiful Caleb, and I almost forget that my babies had broken my back. I answered honestly, I don't know. April 28th, 1998. Caleb's imaginary friend has become a serious issue. He started behaving badly, breaking rules and saying foul words. At school, he fights with his classmates and causes trouble during class. At home, he throws fits and curses at his father. This behavior is unheard of before for Caleb. 
the shyest and quietest boy. His attachment to me is growing stronger, and he seems to despise his father. However, Philip tries to please him. April 22nd, 1998. Today, we visited a child psychologist, although Philip believed it to be a waste of time. While we were watching, she let him play and asked him random questions. His face turned white when she mentioned his imaginary friend. I know what imaginary means. I'm not imagining him. Okay, Kayla. So, he's a boy. Yes. And what do you do together? He shrugged. Whatever he wants. That's not fair. Don't you think? Caleb shrugged his shoulders again. Can I meet him? He shook his head. Sean's here just for me. The cane slipped from my hand and fell on the floor with a thud. Philip held me. His eyes had gotten as big as mine, but he didn't say a word. Caleb hadn't made up an imaginary friend. He had brought his brother back from the dead. He looked at me, worried. Did I do something wrong, Mommy? No, honey, you're doing great. I was just surprised. Why didn't you tell us your friend's name was Sean? He's not my friend. He's always telling me what to do. Did Sean tell you to hit Pete? Yes. Did he tell you to fill your bed with dirt and worms from the garden? Yes. Why? Because he wants me to sleep like he sleeps. (laughs) Caleb! This is not funny. Do you understand me? No more talk of Sean. Suddenly, Caleb got angry. You're stupid! You make mommy cry! Philip turned to me, but I avoided his gaze. Mommy cries every day! Grace? Philip waited for me to answer, or at least nod, but I couldn't. The doctor calmed Caleb down, and we left him with the toys to talk in private. I didn't realize he could hear me. It was the first thing I was able to say out loud. Grace. Philip's voice was soft and concerned and loving. He hadn't spoken to me in this way for so long. It's obvious that he's processing these issues in his own way. Sean won't disappear until Caleb is ready to express his feelings. What you can do is to make him feel safe to do so. June 16th, 1998. We have been visiting the psychologist every week. The sessions have a very positive effect on Caleb. His behavior is improving and his mood is brightening up again. Meanwhile, my relationship with Philip is healing too. We had been holding all the sorrow and pain inside for half a decade, and we had lost each other. And now we're trying to make it work, not only for us, but for our son, too. January 11th, 1999. We were so wrong. When we decided to have one more baby, we thought it would be beneficial for Caleb to have a sibling and for us to move on from Sean's death. A baby always brings happiness, right? 
Our common goal brought Philip and me even closer together. And it was obvious to everybody that something had changed. Then, Sean came back. Caleb's great improvement had halted. He misplaces and damages his father's things. He answers the phone and says that nobody is home, even though I am in the next room. He pranks his classmates, ugly little pranks, that have resulted in every kid in school avoiding him. And every time, he blames Sean. Sean made me do it becomes his catchphrase. Philip scolds and punishes him, but I can't bear to make him sad. Caleb is my little boy. He just needs more attention. That is all. June 13th, 1999. The best of news came. We are pregnant again. (laughs) We've promised Caleb that it will be very exciting to have a little brother or sister to play with, and I'll make sure I give him all my free time. October 10th, 1999. My friends and relatives say my face is radiant and my smile is as bright as the sun. However, as my belly grows bigger, Caleb grows weary of all the baby-related shopping and topics of discussion. Literally weary. Black circles have appeared under his eyes. There have been days he's fallen asleep in class or has been sent to the nurse's office due to a fainting spell. Sean won't let me sleep, he says. He whispers in my ear all night. I'm very worried. The psychologist has suggested I make him comfortable with my belly and the new baby, so we cuddle and sing his favorite songs to the baby and take funny photos of ourselves. Today he came with us to my doctor's appointment, and... When he saw the baby's tiny hands and feet on the monitor, he giggled and caressed my belly. December 7th, 1999. I haven't been able to stop crying since Caleb came home from school. He was exhausted and almost forgot to give me the note from his teacher. It read, Please ask him about the drawing. Caleb showed me the lovely picture he had drawn this morning. Blue sky, white grass. Because it's snowing, he explained. And a two-story house with a red roof like ours. In the center, there were three people. Philip wearing his blue tie. Caleb holding a sword. I am your guardian, he said. And me between them. I laughed. My body was a circle, and I looked more like a snowman than a woman. What's this, honey? I pointed to the red smudge next to Philip. It was small compared to the rest of the stick figures, and horizontal, a brown line crossed it vertically. I put my palm on my belly while trying to decipher it. Is it Maggie? Caleb shook his head. Sean wanted me to draw him too. Vomit rose in my throat. We had never told Caleb about how Sean had passed. Never. How could you describe to a child a ball of blood and black hair with the umbilical cord around its fragile neck? But Caleb somehow knew. Honey, why did you draw this? I told you. Sean. Caleb, this is serious. 
Please tell me the truth. I won't be upset. I looked into his big eyes. We were both on the verge of tears. Is Sean here now? He pointed a finger right at me. He's hanging under your belly. Philip found me in the bathroom crying and vomiting at the same time. When I showed him the drawing, he stormed into Caleb's bedroom and grounded him for a month. December 29th, 1999. The doctor says I'm not far now. In four or five weeks, I will be holding my precious girl in my arms. I've been talking to her every day for the last seven months. Recently, I've taken up talking to Sean, too. Like he is in there with Maggie. I ask him for forgiveness and plead with him to let his brother be. But there is never a response. Philip treats me with caution like I am losing my mind. And I believe he's right. I want to believe I'm losing my mind and that we're not being haunted by the ghost of our newborn. My dear Caleb doesn't leave my side. His presence makes me feel safer than any of Philip's reassurances. He's taken his father's side of the bed as neither of us can sleep without each other anymore. Nevertheless, I'll have to impose on my little guardian a strict set of rules. He considers my pregnancy a game, and he often gets careless. January 8th, 2000. Caleb tried to jump on me while I was laying on the couch watching TV. Seeing his momentum, I moved out of the way, and Philip screamed at him. My little boy looked at me with the most hurt expression, and I felt utterly guilty. That night, he went to sleep in his bedroom without even saying goodnight or asking for a kiss. At four o'clock in the morning, I woke up suddenly as if out of a nightmare. My eyes wandered in the dark for a few moments before finding Caleb's on mine. I started. He was watching me from the door, motionless and silent, like an animal eyeing its prey. I whispered so as not to wake Philip up. What's the matter, honey? How long have you been standing there? Sean is bothering me, but I didn't want to wake you up and make you angry again. I felt so ashamed of myself. January 16th, 2000. I've been waking up in the middle of the night for the past week. It's like an alarm goes off in my mind. But when I open my eyes, everything around me is as it should be. I think the reason I'm feeling jumpy is that Caleb has been spending a lot of time alone in his room. And not with me, as usual. January 18th, 2000. When I woke up last night, Caleb was in the room. He had closed the door behind him. He said that Sean was keeping him up again. I don't know why. A mother should never, ever think this way. But the sight of him last night made my skin crawl. January 21st, 2000. Every time I open my eyes... I find Caleb standing still in the dark bedroom watching me. Each sleepless night, he's a bit closer to the bed. And closer and closer. 
I absentmindedly wonder what will happen when he reaches the bed. Ivan revealed our son's late-night visits to Philip. I'm afraid that he will take unnecessarily drastic measures if he finds out. I think we all need a few more appointments with the psychologist. March 6th, 2000. Why, God? Why? From that point on, the diary became chaotic. Little to nothing made sense. My wife urged me to stop reading, saying I was white like a ghost. My hands were trembling holding the damn notebook. However, I continued turning the pages that hadn't stuck together, searching for an explanation I knew wouldn't ease my mind. The following entries might provide you as well with some answers. August 27, 2003. The small cabin Philip's grandparents left him after they died is perfect for us. Of course, Philip isn't here. He comes once a week to bring us groceries. I never see him. He leaves the groceries outside the door. I don't know how he's going to keep this up in the harsh winter of the mountains, or if he'll be willing to for much longer. The pain is worse now. I spend my days in a wheelchair caring for my dear boy. I read a lot. That's something I always wanted to do, but never had the time before. Now I have all the time in the world, and nothing to worry about. As long as we're staying away from other people, we'll be happy. Caleb swears that he can still see Sean and Maggie, but I made him promise to never speak of them again. January 25th, 2008. It's been exactly eight years since the night I lost Maggie. I'm trying to cry silently. Caleb wouldn't like to hear me so sad. He loves me so much, my sweet boy. But I cannot help it. That night was the night our nightmare, the true nightmare, began. It was almost 20 past 3 in the morning, the time I woke up, heart pounding, eight years ago, to find two eyes staring at me from a few inches above. An exclamation escaped my mouth, and Philip stirred. What is it? Then he became aware of our son's presence. Caleb? What are you doing? Caleb's gaze didn't diverge, staring at me, at my soul, eagerly, Expectantly, almost excitedly. Sean told me to do it. At Sean's mention, I got worried. Philip tried to switch on the light, but nothing happened. What are you doing? Philip's tone made me even more anxious. Was he seeing something I was not? He doesn't like Maggie. My hands moved instinctively to my belly. The bed sheets and my pajamas were soaked, but I couldn't feel anything. I turned to Philip. The baby's coming. We have to go to the hospital. Philip jumped out of bed, but I could not. My legs would not obey. I thought they were just numb. It happened a lot after the twins' birth. I looked at Caleb. Can you help me, honey? He didn't move an inch, still watching. 
still waiting. I already did. He showed me what he was holding in his small hands. In the darkness, I didn't recognize it immediately. My eyes flashed back at me from the long metal surface. A thick liquid was dripping from its pointy end. I screamed. November 12th, 2011. Caleb is turning 20 in a few weeks. How time flies! Philip left us some extra supplies to celebrate appropriately. I found a secret letter inside them again. In it, Philip is begging me to leave our beautiful farm before the storm comes. He's sure we will not survive it. But that's what he said last year and the year before it, too, when... I would never abandon my only child, my little guardian. Philip will never accept I chose our son over him. I can't remember the last person I saw. Was it the postman that smiled at me? It must be 10 years already. I don't miss people. Although I'm not here far away from the entire world because I hate them. That's what I let Caleb believe. The truth is, I am here to protect them. Because as soon as someone draws my attention, even a tiny bit away from Caleb, my dear boy martyrs them, just as he did to his unborn brother and sister. First, he drowned my mother in the bathtub for taking care of me while I was depressed. Then he broke one of my friend's neck for calling me twice a day. He cut Philip's fingers off for touching me. He pushed the postman in front of oncoming traffic. I thought Sean was to blame, a vengeful ghost turning my Caleb into a monster. But now I know better. Now I know that ghosts don't exist. It's just the special bond between a mother and her child. And Caleb is the smartest, bravest, loveliest boy a mother could ask for. When I closed the filthy notebook, the sun had set, and total darkness encircled the cabin. My mouth was dry, so my legs drove me to the kitchen. My wife was there. The yellow light of the room shone on her brown hair and smooth skin like an aura around her. Why don't you burn that thing? I looked down at my hands. The notebook was still there, dried mud on its edges. I've never seen you so horrified. You're upsetting us. Her arm rested on her big, round belly. And when she spoke again, she was smiling. Oh, don't you worry, little one. Daddy's just being silly. Mommy's going to take care of her sweet girl no matter what.
Thank you for joining us on our journey down the lost highway. The musical score was composed by Brandon Boone. Our production team is Phil Mykolski, Jeff Clement, and Jesse Cornett. Our creative content manager is Olivia White. I'm your host and executive producer, David Cummings. Please visit thenosleeppodcast.com for show notes and more details about the people who bring you this show. On behalf of everyone at the No Sleep Podcast, we thank you for listening and for being a supportive Season Pass member. As the darkness fades, it feels like you're going to dream. This audio production is copyright 2020 by Creative Reason Media, Inc. All rights reserved. The copyrights for each story are held by the respective authors. No duplication or reproduction of this audio program is permitted without the written consent of Creative Reason Media, 